are listening to Pushing Beyond the Obvious, where we help entrepreneurs succeed. Um, thanks a lot for taking time and talking to us today, um, Kevin. Um, it's my pleasure being here. Super. So, um, as we do with all our uh, guests, uh, uh, if, if I can ask you to introduce yourself and uh, uh, the body of work that you have done so far. My name is Kevin Kelly. I am the senior maverick at Wired Magazine, author of several books. Uh, previous uh, was What Technology Wants, and my current book is The Inevitable, um, just out in paperback, which looks at the next 20 to 30 years in the digital world. Super. So, um, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest for the show. Uh, I have been uh, following some of the things that you've been doing uh, of late as well. Uh, specifically, I like the work that you do on true films. And uh, so where did that interest come from? Um, I'm a big fan of nonfiction, nonfiction books. And documentaries are the equivalent of nonfiction films. So I love to learn. And um, uh, we are now enjoying a renaissance of documentaries. The um, technology has allowed more and more people to make them. And so um, as more of these were being made in the beginning of the 1990s, I discovered that there was nowhere that was really reviewing nonfiction films. They were considered kind of... Um, you know, they're, they're kind of like the orphan child. Uh, newspapers didn't really pay much attention to them. So I started a website where I was reviewing um, the documentaries that, that were at that time available on VHS tape, um, which were very few that actually ever made it to uh, the consumer market. Um, they all, the traditional path for a, a documentary was to be shown in theaters or music uh, uh, film festival. And so it was very hard to find them, and I was uh, reviewing the ones that, that were available to the consumer. Um, and, and of course, since then, Netflix has come along and other streaming channels and YouTube, and, and now it's been come pretty easy to find them. Um, but, um, and it's become more difficult for me to keep up. <laughs> But the um, origins was was it was a service that was um, needed, and there was no one else really doing it when I first started. So um, uh, let's come back to uh, the book uh, that you were talking about, the inevitable. So uh, I think uh, I read the book uh, uh, multiple times, and I think uh, it's a fabulous book uh, where you are talking about 12, 12 things or twelve trends that are uh, inevitable. So first things first. Uh, why title this inevitable? Do you really think that you know all these twelve trends are definitely going to play out? And what do you mean by uh, uh, these? Uh, uh, you you call these verbs and things that are happening and can, will continue to evolve. So if you can just share some insights there. Yeah, the the premise is that um, while specific products or services or companies are not predictable. They're inherently unpredictable and surprising and random. Um, 
the trends that drive them, the large forms, um, are inevitable, meaning that they're coming from the very nature of physics and technology, and that um, because of that, they're going to come whether we um, want them or not. So as long as technology is going to be made, it's going to drift in these directions. And I kind of identify 12 of those directions. They're not, they're all self-feeding and intermingled and codependent on each other. You, you could slice them in different ways, but the general direction are, are inevitable, meaning that, you know, all things being equal, we are going to head in this direction. I'm, I'm not describing destinations or destinies. I'm only describing general tendencies, general general um, directions. It's sort of like um, if rain was to fall down in a valley and you were to try and trace the exact path of one drop as it as it hit the the hill and went down, you you would be you could not predict the path, but you could certainly predict the direction, which was downward. And so um, uh, these these trends, I, I believe, are inevitable that they're going to happen no matter what. And those trends are things like we're going to increase the amount of stuff that we track. More and more of our lives are going to be tracked. More and more of information is being tracked. We're going to um, create more more smarter things, make things smarter and smarter, and some of them very, very smart. And as long as technology's going, as long as we're making new things, we're going to move in that direction. Now, what's not inevitable is, you know, the products, the companies. Uh, the Internet was inevitable, but Facebook or Twitter was not. Um, once you made wires and electricity, it was inevitable that you invent telephones. We know that because there were hundreds of people around the world trying to invent telephones. Same thing with light bulbs. Thomas Edison was the 32nd inventor of the light bulb, not the first. So, so many people independently are trying to do these things. They're going to happen. And, um, uh, there will be AI. The question is, well, what kind of AI? What is, what's the character? What's the political uh, regime around it? What's the economic models? All these things are unknown to us and undecided, and we get to choose, and they make a huge difference to us. So there's plenty of room for our choice. But we don't have choice is the fact that there's going to be more AI. Interesting. And you also, uh, uh, in the book, uh, talk about the fact that you are looking at the entire thing from a technology point of view versus looking at it from a social point of view. So, uh, yes, can you elaborate it's, a, it's, a, it's a little trick to, to pretend to look at the world through the eyes of technology to see where it wants to go. So um, I'm trying to say that, uh, you know, the, the, the conceptual uh, conceit is to uh, view technology as having its own agenda. And I, and I think that's, uh, that it does. I think there isn't independent uh, tendencies in, in technology itself that's brought about by the fact that it's a physical, um, that has physical characteristics, that it's material stuff. Even, even bits are material. Even bits have to run on something. And that all these things bias 
the system in certain recurring patterns. And these are the recurring patterns that we try to identify to show where it's going. Interesting. And uh, uh, what role does uh, uh, the society or the political structure uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that is prevalent when these trends are actually playing out can have on, on these trends itself? Do you already see, I mean, uh, the paper, the uh, hardbound edition of your book was out, I think if I'm not wrong, about five, six months back, which means that you would have written uh, the book almost a year back now. In the one year that has passed, uh, have you seen uh, any of these trends either slowing or speeding up or, uh, uh, you know, the political scenario has changed? Meanwhile, uh, do you see that affecting the trends? Yeah, the book was actually written a couple of years ago um, by now. Um, and in, in that meantime, no, I, I, I am more, the, the, the ev there's more and more evidence for what I was talking about than ever before. So... I don't think the trends are necessarily speeding up because they're not about, it's not about the speed, it's about the direction. Mm -hmm. And so we are definitely still headed in the same directions that I've been talking about. Um, I, I don't really talk about the, the velocity or the speed because I think those are not really uh, predictable. Um, what, what, we, what I'm really pointing to is, is, is a general direction saying all things being equal, we're going to generally move to making things smarter and smarter and smarter. We may never, who knows if we ever arrive at some utopian vision of an AI, uh, or, you know, a conscious being that, you know, walks around. We, we know what that looks like from, from Hollywood. I don't, I don't know. I can't say, but I can say we're moving in that direction all the time. And so, um, that's sort of like, all that you need to know in a certain sense. Imagine uh, if in the 1970s um, you really believed Moore's Law. So, so Moore's Law stated that, you know, computers are getting faster and, you know, twice as fast, half as cheap every 18 months, let's say two years. So if you really believed that at that time, that was all you needed to know that for the next 40 or 50 years, computers will get twice as fast, half as cheap every two years. If you, if you, if you saw that direction, uh, you could, first of all, make billions of dollars. Um, and secondly, you could, you, if you were a policymaker, you could have prepared um, schools, governments, policies, investment strategies, all uh, based to reap the maximum benefits from this. But of course, most people didn't believe that. Um, but that was the direction. And so if, if you, um, you know, if, if you honored that direction for 40 years, it would have guided you very well. And that's all you needed to know. You didn't need to know about Apple or IBM. You just needed to believe that for the next 40 or 50 years, Computers will get twice as fast, half as cheap every year, every two years. Interesting. The most important of these 12 trends is like artificial intelligence, which is the enabling technology that propels all these others. And um, it's, it, it's hard for me to even talk about in the long term. Um, we can't overhype how much this is going to affect. But entrepreneurs don't work over the long term, you know. Um, unfortunately, they're really concerned about, you know, 
next quarter or next year. Even for a lot of entrepreneurs, to even take the, the the long view, like five years is really tough. It's one of the reasons why, like Jeff Bezos' Amazon is so spectacularly distinctive because he's taken the long view from the very very beginning. And an entrepreneur should actually take a longer view, but it's really really difficult to do. So in the short term, like in the next couple of years, um, AI will, will will play an increasing Role, but I don't think there's necessarily going to be a lot of money made from it. But what 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 I think you can do in the coming years with AI is actually become uh, uh, familiar and at ease with it. Because from the perspective of 30 years from now, looking back to this year, there are no AI experts. There really we really have no idea what it is, how it works, what it's good for. And so while there's a lot of money chasing AI and some high-profile people, really, we don't know anything, and there are no experts. So I, I think this is like the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when we had no idea what, what electricity was, and there's a lot of amateurs in their labs or on, in farms, in their barn, playing with electricity, figuring out what it was, what it could do, um, and learning about it and becoming, so to speak, the experts. And there were a lot of low-hanging fruit that they discovered. And I think AI is in a very similar position where you can purchase some AI from Google or Amazon or WhatsApp or IBM, and um, you can play around with it. And you, could, you would know more about it than all but... 50 people on the planet. So um, my suggestion is that this is a long-term investment. I, I think some of these trends are not ready for prime time, but there is a huge opportunity that you could begin to lay the groundwork for. Um, and that's somewhat true also for virtual reality, for this interacting um, I think VR, there's no experts. I think there are a lot of questions. Um, I think this is very early in the game. I think it's going to be hard to make money in VR, but you could position yourself to actually know something about it and maybe know more than most people know about it, and that's going to become valuable on the scale, say, five years. Interesting. And uh, uh, there is a lot of talk about, uh, you know, uh artificial intelligence and uh, uh, how people will uh, gonna work side by side with machines over a period of time and uh, maybe some tasks that uh, every human being is doing will go to artificial intelligence and then it becomes more and more important that we bring in our own uniqueness our own uh, human inherently human qualities uh, uh, to play in order to continue to stay relevant uh, in the marketplace so how do you see this entire thing playing out um, so I already, you already said that uh, this is something not ready for prime time. Whereas if you if you were to listen to the voices in the market, uh, you would uh, believe uh, that you know it is already there and uh, is already live and kicking. Yes, of course it's already there. It's being used by um, Netflix and Amazon to make millions of dollars in their recommendations, and it's being used um, now by with Amazon and. Alexa and Echo to try and um, 
increase their commerce, to sell goods, to sell these units, and they're make, so there are people making money. I, I, I just uh, and and you know, and Netflix has offered uh, millions of dollars in in bonuses and as a prize if you can increase the uh, proficiency their, uh, of their recommendation engine because because it's worth many millions of dollars to them. So there, there are there are a lot of examples uh, where where um, you know this is making money or saving money, but I don't think it's um, I don't think this is like a gold rush uh, happening. Um, and to your point about employment and the worry of um, people losing their jobs, well. This is also going to take some time. This is not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in two years. It'll be over the span of 10 years. Um, I don't think we're going to see auto-driven cars for another five years, or commercially available for another five years, five to 10 years. And so, um, yes, most of the tasks that we have in our job or many of the tasks we have in a job are jobs where efficiency is a criteria. Those are the tasks that can go to the bots and the AIs. Some people have jobs that have more of those kinds of tasks that um, are bound into efficiency, and, any, and efficiency is for robots. So efficiency and productivity, any task that is determined by efficiency and productivity goes to the bots, and that redefines our job. So I would say most jobs are going to be changed by AI, and we will work with them to some extent, or the um, or the things that uh, we do will be um, moved to the AIs, leaving us with the stuff that's really only um, about uh, inefficiencies. Things that are, in, that are inefficient, like like uh, exploration, human experiences, uh, face-to-face relationships, um, science, innovation, all these are inherently inefficient. And those are the kinds of things, those are the kinds of tasks that we will drift to as um, the productive and efficient tasks are given to the robots. So I think most people's jobs will be altered. Not all the jobs will be lost. Most will be altered and changed. And then there will be many, 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 many new jobs um, that will be in, uh, created by these new desires and these new technologies to do things that we didn't even know we wanted done yet. And um, I think the total net gain will be more than what's lost. I don't have, we don't have a lot of proof on that. That's a suspicion taken from the past. It's very hard for us to kind of like imagine what would these new jobs be, but they're going to sound ridiculous. Any if we if if we actually knew what those jobs were in the future, they would sound totally silly to us now. Just as if we went back in time to the farmers in America when seventy percent of Americans were living on farms and told them that you know. Only 1% of you will be farming. The rest of you are going to be web designers. You're going to be a social media strategist. You're going to be a mortgage broker. None, none of those would, would make any sense to them. They would be completely silly. And that's because the whole context, the whole ecosystem 
for that kind of employment was uh, you know, unimaginable to them. And so in the same way, the kind of occupations that we'll have in 30 years will seem silly to us today. Interesting. And given that uh, uh, these are trends that are uh, playing out and uh, uh, the pace at which uh, change is happening around us is also uh, increasing because you know, each one of these trends actually feeds into the other, uh, which also means that you know, as a society, uh, we need to uh, get, uh, we need to think about how all of these trends will affect or impact uh, the socio-political, uh, cultural uh, landscape. So, have you thought of uh, this interplay between uh, culture, society, uh, and uh, where these trends are going, and what if if you, if you think if you have thought through them, uh, what do you think uh, are some of the things that we need to be thinking about, if not uh, already doing? Yeah, um, I, I, my books tend to try to think about what technologies mean including the cultural meaning and there are there are um, you know other trends that I talk about in the inevitable uh, including the, the the shift the the movement away from owning things to, to accessing things so, so that's a that's a long-term trend that's already underway and will continue to go it began in the digital realm with music where once it became uh, easy to deliver any music file anywhere in the world, anytime to anyone, where from their point of view, the consumer's point of view, they had access to any music anywhere, anytime. The, um, the benefits of owning that diminished. It was like, why would I want to own the music, I'd have to back it up, and I'd have to store it, and I'd have to file it and catalog it. i have to keep everything upgraded. Why would I want to own this music when, if, if I could have true access to it anytime I wanted to? And, and I don't have all those duties uh, to, to take care of it. And so that kind of new convenience moved to movies, and people say, well, why should I purchase a movie if I could just buy access to it when I get it whenever I want it? And then to books, move to books, digital books, and then to digital games, and then even into the physical world. And so the way it works in the physical world is if, um, if you can get delivery if on demand, if you have on-demand delivery of something, even physical, and it doesn't have to be instant. It can actually be like within 30 minutes, maybe even an hour. That's most of the time. That's as fast as we really need something. If you could have something within 30, 30 minutes from when you actually thought of it, um, in an hour at the most, then that's actually like instant access. And if you could get anything you needed or wanted within 30 minutes, then why would you want to own it if you could then give it back? And um, so with, you know, very fast delivery, maybe 3D printing and other means, you could actually have physical things uh, delivered on demand and then removed on demand, um, which would change the equation. And you would say, well, why would I want to have to store this and ensure it and clean it and maintain it? 
and upgrade it when I could just demand the say that the, the, I could demand the best camping equipment of this year I'm going to go camping I don't need to and then I'll give it back uh, and it'll be passed on and so I'm going to share it in that sense uh, I'll have access to it um, but I don't need to own it it's better than owning it and so this general shift is in progress and the question is well how far does it go I mean what other things could we reimagine not as a product that you buy, but as a service that you access. So there's this general movement away from products towards services, away from things that are solid to things that are flowing and, and active, away from the tangible into the intangible. And so um, uh, the question is, well, how far does it go? I mean, can we reimagine food? Can we reimagine furniture? Can we reimagine clothes as things that you don't buy, but you simply access? And the answer is, is that there's a lot of people thinking about it and there's some very creative innovation going on. And there's probably, um, we're probably just still at the beginning of what we can actually reimagine as a service. I know, I mean, uh, in India, uh, there are services which offer uh, furniture on rent, um, gets delivered, you pick what you want and it gets delivered, uh, not in one hour, but maybe, you know, in a day. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, startups in the US which are actually renting out uh, designer uh, clothes for someone to wear for a party and return it back. So I think uh, the the trend is well on its way and we are already seeing entrepreneurs taking advantage of, of these very trends and these very change in the cultural mindset of people and are able to uh, create business models according to that. And I'm sure that yes. there are such opportunities uh, um, um, uh, a lot uh, available. There's huge opportunities, and a lot of this is going to depend on the excellence of the execution. I mean, there will be certainly many people who will fail doing this, because I think the execution is very critical, it's very sensitive to getting all the parts right from the interface to the actual delivery to the maintenance and removal, um, etc. So... Um, it's not necessarily an easy thing to get into, but I think there is uh, many opportunities to reimagine all kinds of products as services. So I'm sure during the process of uh, uh, research and uh, writing the book, uh, you would have had uh, a lot more than uh, uh, what actually ended up in the book. So is there anything that uh, you thought was, uh, uh, was important uh, enough for you to research quite a bit? but did not fit or did not end up in the book? Yeah, there, there, was, there was lots that didn't end up in the book. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of... Um, well, there, there, there was uh, actually um, one of my most popular um, essays is not in the book, and it's called The Thousand True Fans. Mm -hmm. And um, the... The idea behind that is that um, with these new technologies, um, a creator, let's think of an individual creator, an entrepreneur, a creator, a maker, somebody who was you know, maybe a filmmaker, a musician, a photographer, an inventor, um, a sculptor, um, that with this um, new technology 
of communication, you, you have the option of directly connecting to your fans and having your fans pay you directly for your work. So in the old days, you would have a publisher and they would publish a book and sell a book to the readers and the readers would pay the publisher and then the, maybe the publisher would pay you something. But this um, direct uh, system would, you'd have readers who would pay you directly for the book. And um, if you could uh, find and recruit and cultivate true fans, and I would define true fans as a fan that bought whatever you produced. They were so in love with your work that they would buy the hardcover and the paperback and the Kindle. They would drive 200 miles to see you play. They would uh, come to your restaurant um, every month. Um, you know, whatever it is, they would be a true fan. And so if you could sell some minimum amount of your product to them every year, let's say it was $100 worth, then, then you, and you were being paid directly by them, then you, the mathematics would suggest you only needed a thousand true fans to make a living. That's $100,000 a year. Um, and so uh, maybe the numbers are off a little bit. Maybe um, you can't sell $100, you can only sell $50 a year. Well, then you need 2,000, but it's in that same order of magnitude. You, the, the idea is that you don't need a million an audience of a million and bestseller them to actually make a living if you had direct access to your fans. And of course, with the rise of the crowdfunding um, uh, sites like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, etc., um, now you could actually have your true fans um, pre-fund pre you. They, they, they could actually finance your work and you would, you would be serving your true fans. And in a global world, a world basically where everybody is connected, suddenly that also changes the equation because now even the most obscure passion or interest or even invention, um, even if it would only appeal to one in a million people, which is pretty esoteric, then you still, with with a worldwide population, you still have a, you still have thousands of potential true fans. There still be thousands of people who would appeal to it, even if it was really only appealing to one in a million people. And most good things will appeal to more than one in a million. So what this means is that there's almost any idea or any passion or any really deep interest that you have the potential to find a thousand true fans to support your working at if you're going to willing to deal with the fans directly. And that's one of the caveats is that not everybody is sort of either willing or, or, or wired personality wise to deal with fans because that becomes part of your job. And there, if that's true, then you actually want to hire that out. And so you have to, you have a different number, but, um, you can still have, you'll still need less than a million fans to support you. So um, this idea, I think, can be applied to entrepreneurs, which is if you're willing to make a living and not necessarily a fortune, you know, the VCs want to fund growth companies, that, companies that are seeking to make a fortune where they grow really fast. 
Um, if you're willing to go to what they call lifestyle business, a business where you're just going to make it just a, a living for you, um, then in the, uh, you need only the order of, of thousands of true fans, an audience in the thousands, which is a lot more doable, a lot more achievable. And, you know, you could even remember a thousand names if you really worked at it. So um, this is a alternative, an alternative goal rather than try to imagine that you need millions of an audience in the millions to actually make a living. You, you, you don't if you really focus on your true fans. True. And let's say, um, um, uh, assuming that you know, all these trends are playing out uh, and uh, which they are, uh, what do you think are probably the most important skills that uh, people can actually learn or develop in order to be successful in a world where all these trends have actually either played out fully or are playing out fully? The primary, I think there's two, two or three skills. The primary skill that I think uh, is the uber skill, it's the superpower that unleashes everything else. It's the meta skill. Is the ability is to learn how to learn, the ability to 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 learn all your life, the ability to learn new things, the ability to learn well and fast and good, and um, that that is really the the super skill that um, every graduate should have because we're all going to be newbies. We're all going to be having to learn new things. There'll be a whole new platform in five years. Um, we'll have to unlearn the old stuff. And that's going to be a continuous lifelong learning. So you need to get good at it. And uh, ideally, for the real golden ticket, what you want to learn is how you want to learn to optimize your own kind of learning because all of us learn differently. And if you can actually methodologically, scientifically um, figure out how to optimize your own learning, how you learn best, then that's, that, that's the ultimate superpower. And so that's the first thing. The second, you know, learning how to learn, becoming a lifelong learner. The second thing is you want to learn how to ask questions. That's the second thing they should be teaching in schools because I think if you want answers, you're going to ask machines. You, you know, the Googles and the AIs and the Echoes of the world are going to, become better and better at answering questions and giving you answers. Um, for a long time, for if not ever, they're not going to be very good at asking questions. And a question is really a type of exploration. It's a type of investigation. Um, it's at the heart of science and innovation. You're asking what if, what if this happened, what if this. And um, if, to, to ask really good questions, is really the source of uh, you know all the good things in the world because they've come from someone asking a good question, uh, and it's not really um, obvious uh, to many people um, why questions are hard to ask. So that so that's something else that needs to be taught is what I'm suggesting. And the third the third um, thing I think we need to learn is. Um, critical thinking, uh, scientific, uh, what I call techno-literacy, just understanding um, the nuances of how technology works, how the media works, 
um, you know, uh, learning to distinguish fake news, learning to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to manage your distractions. Um, you know, we, we spent four or five years, uh, each of us here, listen, anybody you're listening, we spent four or five years learning how to read and write. That kind of literacy came at a steep price. We actually just couldn't hang around books. We actually had to have deliberate practice and study and, and work hard at learning how to read and write. And it may be that some of these other new technologies require uh, a similar kind of literacy that has to be earned, that where we actually have to have deliberate practice and figure out and learn how to use it well. And that may apply to social media, it may apply to information, it may apply to media, where you actually have to be taught and uh, we have to have best practices and we have to learn about social etiquettes and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so it's something that you maybe spend a couple of years um, learning how to do. And so I think these three skills are really what you want to know. You, you want to you be able to um, figure out how you learn best. You want to learn how to ask questions. And you want to master uh, techno literacy. And I think... Um, Everything else is just bonus. You can't learn how to learn in general. You have to learn specific things. So if you're going to learn specific things, um, then you might as well learn useful things. Um, but I do acknowledge that you can't learn about learning in general. You have to you have to actually learn specific things. So there is that choice of what you spend your time learning. True. So that nicely segues into my next question as we are getting close to the time that we have. Uh, and uh, these are, I'll get into the set of questions that I ask all our guests today, uh, which is first one is, you know, how do you continuously keep yourself at the forefront of uh, uh, what is happening, which means, you know, how do you learn uh, uh, your stuff? How do you stay on top of uh, your world? I pay a lot of attention to what my children do and what their friends do. Um, that's the first thing. I pay a lot of attention to what criminals in the underworld and the military does. Um, I pay attention to way how, how things are abused on the street, how hackers or artists um, use things and where they're paying attention to and what they do in their free time. So the second part of that is I pay attention to where things are free. I follow the free is my sort of mantra where you want to look at where people are giving their attention, um, where there's no commercial interest going on. It's people's hobbies. It's people's avocations, what they do with their free time and their, the, where they give their attention when there's no money involved. Um, so that's the second thing. I, the third thing is a look at where new language is, is erupting. Because um, generally new concepts require new words. And if there's new words being invented, that means there's probably new concepts and new ideas coming. So um, I try to pay attention to where there's new words. And um, I think the third thing, or the, the fourth uh, way is uh, I try to read as much of the scientific literature, the stuff in the research labs, as I can. It's difficult to keep up, but it's important to pay attention to the actual 
pure research being done because there's a long path between something discovered in the lab, but but it's not going to make it to the street unless it's um, already been discovered in the lab. So that gives you a heads up of where things are going by paying attention to the science. Okay. So uh, the next question is, uh, is there a piece of uh, art, maybe a film that uh, you have uh, uh, curated in, on your site or a book uh, that you think uh, people should definitely check out? You mean something that I recommend, you mean? Yes. And it, it pertains to entrepreneurship? Uh, yes, entrepreneurship or even otherwise as well, based on what uh, the trends that you are seeing. Yeah, well, just as a parenthetically, just a little advertisement, um, I, I um, run a little one-page email newsletter, it's just one page. Every week, Mark Forenteller from Boing Boing and I makes six recommendations every Sunday, and we email those out to anybody who signs up. So, so we make it six recommendations of something to read, something to listen to, something to watch, a place to go to, a tool to use, a tip. So every week I make six, we make six recommendations um, if people are interested in, in, in that. So um, just one recommendation right now. Well, um, uh, my gosh, entrepreneur. Yeah, so, 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 so I just, I mean, you mentioned True Films. I just watched a, a documentary about uh, Warren Buffett. It's called Becoming Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really recommend that um, because Warren Buffett is close to one of the wealthiest people on the planet. You know, he has some kind of a wealth of sixty billion dollars. It seems like crazy. Like, what, what does that even mean, sixty <laughs> billion dollars? But um, if you look at his life, you know, every morning he he, he lives in this house he bought. You know, I don't know, uh, two hundred years ago. He drives a little car five minutes to work. He stops at McDonald's. And buys breakfast, and he has three different breakfasts that he gets. He gets one for two dollars and sixty-one cents, and one for two dollars and ninety-three cents, and one for three dollars and twelve cents. And he says it depends on what the market is that day, <laughs> which one, he, which breakfast he gets, and then he takes it and goes to and microwaves it. And it's like this is the richest guy in the world. He's not spending his money, and all he can do, he cannot help it. He just, he just runs stock. Option, you know, runs the numbers in his head. He reads about this stuff. He just is trying to compound his his money. It's a game, <laughs> and um, he can't help it. This is what he does for his free time. He has all the money. He he, he can't even give away his money. His, he was hoping his wife would give away his money, but she died before, <laughs> and so now so he said, well, the solution was how Bill Gates give it away. He doesn't even have time to give his money away. <laughs> all he can do is make more money. And he does it sort of naturally. Um, and I think it's a really great lesson for anybody who's an entrepreneur because um, you realize that I think greatness is kind of overrated in a certain sense. Yeah. The ability to make money is in many ways overrated. Yeah, I mean, he's making money. He's making billions. He's making more. He can't help it. That's what he does. But his life, although well, he's a very pleasant person, um, is obviously, you know, he had a lot of trouble with some of his relationships. Um and it's like, yeah, you can do that, but is, is that really what you're trying to optimize in your life? And so um, 
I, I think it's a good lesson about um, maybe the over the, the way we have overrated extreme wealth. And um, what I tell friends, because I know a lot of billionaires, is listen. You really do not want to have a billion dollars. You do not want to have a billion dollars. <laughs> don't you know? Don't put that on your 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 dream list because it's actually a huge burden. These people don't live. Like Warren Buffett does not live any differently than a, mil, a millionaire would live. So yeah, you, <laughs> be a millionaire. Yeah. That's a good dream. That's a good dream. Cool. So um, we've kind of uh, clo re reached close to the end of the uh, uh, time that we have. Uh, last question uh, is uh, the show is called Pushing Beyond the Obvious. So is there something that you see which is so obvious to you but people miss all the time? Miss all the time. Um, well, it's very obvious to me that we're going that we're moving towards world government, and world government is something that. Nobody that I talk to thinks it's a good idea. Um, people on the left think it's not only it's a good idea. People on the right, people in the developing world, nobody thinks it's a good idea. But I think it's a good idea. So um, to me, it's obvious that we're going to that we need world government. That world government um, is is inevitable in the long term, and that we have planetary problems, so we need planetary solutions. But nobody I talk to thinks it's a good idea. In fact. I, I don't even know how it's possible. I don't know how it would work, how you could have a democratic uh, democracy with 7 billion people. So it seems impossible, but at the same time, it seems inevitable. <laughs> Super. So where can people connect with you, uh, uh, Kevin? And also, uh, where can people subscribe to the newsletter that you spoke about? Yeah, so my homepage is at my initials, kk.org. Um, and I sometimes, well, we have our reviews of cool tools every day on the site. We have um, occasionally tweet at Kevin to Kelly, Kevin the number two Kelly. But Recommendo is where to get the newsletter. So Recommendo with, with one M, recommendo.com, okay. where we do the six recommendations. So they can sign up at recommendo.com. Super. So thanks a lot, Kevin, for taking time and talking to us today. Uh, it was a pleasure. And the book is called Inevitable. Uh, it's available in paperback, available everywhere. Uh, books are sold. So I strongly recommend every single entrepreneur who's listening to the show to go ahead and uh, buy the book, read it, and use your imagination to find out where and how you can apply your skills of entrepreneurship and uh, hustle uh, to uh, figure out which trend to attack. So thanks a lot, Kevin, for taking time to us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a, have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious. If you like the show and would like to support, please head over to iTunes or wherever you are listening to this show and rate us and write a review. Till next time, have fun.